0: Good morning, everybody. I'd like to uh, just very quickly refresh your memories of um, a lesson uh, about three or four weeks ago now, before the Easter break. Um, important because it sets the stage, as it were, for many of the lessons that are to follow. The theme of biblical change. And you may recall we entertained two questions. Um, First of all, uh, changed from what exactly, and secondly, transformed into what. And the first, the 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 answer, if you will, or the response to the second question, changed into what. We noted uh, the early church fathers understood, or many of them, at least, understood this concept called, that they called theosis, based upon Peter's language in Second Peter chapter one and verse four, where Peter speaks of the Christian becoming a partaker of the divine nature, a participant in the life of God. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the same phenomenon, using different languages, he talks about being conformed to the image of his son, who, of course, we know was the express image of God the Father. And so it's the idea of our being restored to that image that we were originally created as and, and, and for. Um, Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, uh, died in 373, just to give you a bit of a historical context. He, he described the incarnation in these terms. God became like us so that we could become like him. Uh, Irenaeus, an earlier church father, uh, born 130 AD, which is very interesting because he was actually taught by those that were taught directly by uh, the apostles, he used this interesting phrase, the glory of God is man fully alive. And of course man there is a generic term for humanity. The glory of humanity is found in God only when humanity, each one of us as human beings, are Fully alive. And that's interesting because that implies that we're less than fully alive. And that full aliveness, if you will, is the goal towards which we are working according to God's plan. So this phrase, just to sort of summarise things humanity is created in God's image, but that image has become marred by sin. Christianity proclaims the good news about humanity's redemption and our restoration to God's image in Christ. Changed from what? Well, in a word... Sin, and we can move very quickly through this. I'm sure that we're all very familiar. Sin is lawlessness is the most basic definition, I guess. And this one, sin is missing the mark, which draws us close in understanding the fundamental nature of sin. Um, Just to read that indented paragraph there, this aspect of sin highlights the relationally corrosive, that is, the tension that it brings, the destruction it brings in relationships between between people, not just people, but between people and, and our God, between people and our environment for that matter. And it's personally destructive. It eats it's like a cancer. It eats away uh, within us. Sin is not just about external actions. I fear that even among believers, sometimes sin is reduced to black and white terms, simplistic terms of, you know, it's just a bunch of rules. And if you keep the rules, you're okay with God. If you break the rules, you're in trouble with God. That's, on one level, there's there's an element of truth in that. Sin, after all, is lawlessness, falling short of the express will of God or going beyond the express will of God. But it's much bigger than just a simple matter of breaking of rules. There is this element of, of corruption. Sin's not just about external actions. Sin becomes an internalised state of being. That is, we become corrupted. And we may remember we, we associated that with the idea in modern psychological terms we might think of addiction, um, being sinful. Or as Paul, the phrase that he used for this condition is living in the flesh, living after the flesh rather than living after the Spirit, seeking to uh, be conformed to the image of, of Christ. Sin is the opposite or absence of shalom, peace, and Shabbat, rest. Sin, in other words, is whatever is opposed to God's good purposes. Now, as we move forward... Just putting this together, we're talking about the movement in life from death to life, from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, from violence to peace, from selfishness to love. These are all the movements that the scriptures use to, to describe this process of becoming fully alive. And, of course, in the lessons to come, if you just glance at those various titles, you'll recognise the common denominator. is, there, is the, These are ways of, of living out sin in our life, and so we're focused upon seeking to identify and overcome, remove these things from our life. Now, I want to take us back to the beginning. This is where we left off several weeks ago. And Genesis chapter 3 introduces us to this phenomenon that we know of as sin. The three together, beginning in verse 1. The serpent was craftier than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about all of the various insights and nuances related to sin that we can draw here. For our purposes this morning, though, I just want you to notice this process. And I'm confident in describing this process because James, as we'll go on and read in a moment, identifies precisely this very process in the context of what he calls temptation. But for the moment, I want you to notice how this this process, this sequence of events unfolds in the experience of Eve. We've got on the left-hand side there, you'll notice, desire. That's the beginning point. Then we've got that middle stage of lurement and and enticement. And then finally, desire, when it is entertained and indulged, it conceives in the form of sin. Again, let's think about desire for a moment, as it's presented here in Genesis chapter 3. You know, If you put yourself in Eve's shoes, if you will, probably wasn't wearing shoes come to think of it at that point, but you know what I mean. Tasty, attractive, prestigious. What John seems to be referring to when he describes in 1 John, lust of the eyes, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. If we were to think of Jesus as a temptation, these same three elements can be discerned in that context as well. This seems to be the strategy, if you will, the avenues through which Satan attacks us in our vulnerability as creatures, as free will creatures, creatures who have the opportunity to choose right from wrong, to say yes or no. Uh, you might in modern terms, I guess, describe it as Pleasure, possessions and power Pleasure, possessions and power And I want you to notice that all three of these things In, in the proper context, they're legitimate within themselves There's nothing wrong with seeking pleasure There's nothing wrong with, 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 with possessions, owning things And there's certainly nothing wrong with power Because power is necessary in order to act to accomplish good But what's happening here is that those things are misdirected. They're being misused. And in that sense, the good is becoming corrupted. And notice the initial temptation was beyond Eve's control. The serpent approaches her from without, you'll notice, and presents her with the temptation. And that's our experience. And that's important, as we're going to notice when we look at James. That's important to note. The temptation is beyond one. It comes from outside. Lured and enticed. You notice how Eve entertains the desire. The serpent makes the proposition and it could have died there. But Eve mulled over it, entertained the desire that was stirred. Uh, in, in this case, a sense of dissatisfaction, believing the lie instead of God. And I want to highlight here the fallacy of autonomy, and I guess moderns don't like this. We like to think we're in charge. We like to think we're in control but there's really very little that we're in control of. We have enough control to be responsible for our choices before God, but our choices are relatively limited, and I want to suggest to you in biblical terms that choices are confined within the context of a simple choice to be either a slave of righteousness or a slave of unrighteousness. We get to choose, you see, but the choice is only one of two avenues. We can seek to serve God or we can seek to serve satan that's it that's it and of course as things unfold here eve takes the fruit and eats it she encourages adam who is with her to uh, to do the same and at this point we reach what is clearly defined in scripture as a state of sin open-eyed sinners where the behavior is chosen leading to habitual sin and, and death because sin, sin initially is a an event, but when practiced continually, it becomes a habit, and and like an addiction, it becomes very 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 difficult to change. I want to notice almost in passing. It's interesting um, that that when you think in terms of. Human development, this process, seems to be repeated again in our experiences as growing. If you're a a Peterson fan, you'll recognise perhaps this sort of um, um, psychological phenomenon. with an infant, developmentally incapable of sin. And this is sort of a bit controversial in the world of believers because because many entertain this idea of either original sin, we're born with the guilt of of, of Adam's sin, or in Protestant circles more commonly the idea of inherent depravity, that we're born in a state of sin. Well, if sin is understood as we've defined it earlier, uh, lawlessness uh, and a missing of the mark, we'll recognise that really an infant is incapable of sinning it's just, just not possible for an infant to sin in that modality. Um, just as innocent as Adam and Eve were in the garden. But of course, in the process of growth, we reach childhood and then on into adolescence. And we know that in this period of our lives, we're developing abstract thinking, we're experimenting. And particularly in the teenage years, we are grappling with choosing an identity for ourselves, often trying on different hats in that in that process. But it's a time of experimentation, etc. And sometimes you'll do some risky things and foolish things. But generally, we recognise less culpability because they're teenagers, and teenagers are crazy things. But you'll notice we move to this final stage, adulthood where we recognise that people are fully culpable, they make their choices and therefore they can be held accountable for those choices that they make. Notice that in the sequence, as James describes it as I've connected it here with Genesis chapter 3, that pattern, that model, uh, that paradigm seems to, seems to fit the human experience. And of course, from our point of view as Christians, we, we, it leaves us wrestling with the question, what, is, what exactly is the age of accountability at what point in time? But that's, uh, that's for another, another time. Notice here, James, speaking of the same process, but I'm, I'm repeating this with different nuances so that, because I really believe this is important for us to clearly understand in our minds. No one, says James, when tempted, so we're talking about the process of temptation, no one should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. And Then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. To not be deceived. So that familiar spectrum, if you will, desire on the left hand, uh, desire conceived on the right hand. And I want to use the example, a very topical example today, uh, homosexuality, just to illustrate the point. Let's say we begin with the desire of same-sex attraction and we can debate where that comes from and the whys and wherefores and whatnot. The fact is it's a reality in the experience of many people. Identity dilemma These are Unchosen thoughts And emotions And to that degree Beyond one's control And we need to know That we need to recognise it Because The tendency in the church Can be to say Homosexuality is a sin Well If we mean by homosexuality Just a same-sex attraction Well we're jumping the gun a bit Aren't we According to James Because it hasn't reached That point at this stage just as when the proposition was presented to Eve, it didn't become sin until she acted upon it. That's an important point, I think, to recognise. Um, lest we deal unjustly with, with people who might struggle with same-sex, same-sex attraction. But it is a dilemma. It is a dilemma. And they have a choice to make. Something not of their own choice, not of their own doing. It's something, a particular challenge that that some are presented with. Then we've got this middle stage, the critical point of being lured and enticed. What are we going to do with that desire? That's the big issue from a Christian point of view. We might describe this as, as entertaining a homosexual orientation. What am I going to do with these desires? Am I going to entertain them and am I going to indulge them? And this is what you might call identity development. We're moving along in the process, you'll notice. Choose to be slave of righteousness or sin. In simple terms, comes down to that choice of one or the other. That's what we've got. Choose righteousness, choose unrighteousness. Choose God, choose Satan. But you'll notice the critical point is we have the choice at this point. Then finally, as James described it, when desire is conceived, that's the point at which sin occurs. That's the point on this model of embracing a gay or a lesbian identity and lifestyle. An identity synthesis where I've brought all of those things together after that process of being lured and enticed and I've said, yes, this is where I'm going to go. Chosen behaviour. The point of accountability, therefore the point of, of sin. A footnote, if you will, um, because in terms of sexuality, uh, Jesus' well-known statement in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about lusting in the heart. I think this is often misunderstood, so I want to just clarify this point in passing. Here, clearly, lust in the heart is speaking of more than just desire. More than just that that initial impulse that's come before us. Imagine, if you will, the example of David, classic example. David's out on the rooftop of his of his um, um, castle's the wrong word. He's, he's whatever whatever king's palace palace. Thank you. And and lo and behold, there he spots Bathsheba bathing. Critical point. There is the there is the there is the point of desire through no fault of his own except the accident of happening to be there. And you could make an argument for the text. He should have been off with the other kings as they do in that season and been fighting wars and whatnot, but that's another, another story. The fact is there he's presented with, unexpectedly he's presented with the desire. And the critical point is what do you do with that? Well, we know how the story plays out. And we know the tragic consequences of that story. For Bathsheba, for poor old Uriah, her husband, for the child that was the result of that liaison. I mean, the whole thing is tragic and so wonderfully expresses that that corrupting, destroying nature of, of sin. But at that point on the rooftop, David is innocent of sin, even though he's obviously feeling the desire developing within him and choosing or deciding, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this? Lust in the heart, as Jesus uses it. Here I want to suggest to you, is more in the lines of what we think of when we think of pornography today. Pornography really, among other things, is setting the stage for something and then acting into it even with our imaginations. And it's kind of, I would describe it this way, a point at which we arrive at, I would if I could. I would if I could. The choice is already made in the heart. We've moved beyond desire. We've moved even beyond being lured and enticed and we've arrived to the point, if, if the opportunity presents it, I'm going to go for it. And even though technically I haven't sinned, well, Jesus says, no, that's not the case because it's the will. You've, you've made up the mind. You've made the decision. It's just whether, whether you have the opportunity or not is irrelevant at that point. I would if I could. So Romans chapter two chapter twelve and verse two is interesting to just pause and note at this time. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't follow those impulses as the world does. Don't just live as if you're a smart, dumb animal, as the world advocates. If it feels good, do it. I mean how 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 much plainer could you get than an appeal to To As Paul describes it, life in the flesh, life lived after the flesh, life lived without regard to to spiritual things, without regard to to God, without concern for being Christ-like. Don't do that. Don't do that because you know how much harm that causes to you and to the world around you. Rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here the the, the lured and enticement stage in the process, if you will. This is the critical point where we have that moment to pause and decide what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this? The next step, though, is interesting. Then, if you choose righteousness instead of unrighteousness in that process of deliberating, being lured and enticed... Then you move forward into practice. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now there's a phrase you hear in different contexts at different times, fake it until you make it. And it's kind of mixed feelings about that statement. It sounds a bit superficial at first, doesn't it? Fake it. How could anything good come of faking But if you look at it from this perspective, try before you buy. And this would be an appeal not just to a non-Christian but to a Christian. Because some of us maybe haven't been trying as hard as we might or as much as we might. And for that reason are not so persuaded about the value of Christianity, the value of being a follower of Christ. Maybe we haven't been following hard enough or, or deep enough in order to really start to reap and appreciate the value that Paul talks here, that we might test and approve. Put God to the test. Even if, you, even if you don't think, even if you think, oh, that could never work out. Put God to the test. Do his will. And see what good comes of it. The good will come of it. Because he's the ruler of the universe. He's the architect of the universe. He's the maker of the universe. He knows what is good for us, even though sometimes it might seem counterintuitive to us. This is the whole point, or, or a large part of the point, of, of acting in faith. We trust God. We trust God. We do. I'm reminded of this. Illustration, I don't doubt that everybody here has has seen and heard this before the monkey trap idea. And apparently, um, uh, these hapless monkeys can be easily caught when you just put a bait in a a container with the neck that is just uh, wide enough to slip your hand in, but if you're clasping something with a closed fist, you can't pull it back out. And so, whammo, the the monkey is caught just like that. We might think that's amusing, but it gets a bit. It's a tragic comedy when we think about it. that's exactly what happens with most of us human beings. we lay hold of something and it's only if we're willing to let go of it that we can be free that we can be we can be released. remember we're talking about the context of what scripture calls sin enslavement the Holy Spirit you'll remember is a helper not a coercer our sanctification that is our being set apart are being made holy, bearing fruit of the Spirit, growing in holiness and godliness or Christ likeness. This requires our cooperation with the Spirit of God. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it by pulling up our bootstraps. Don't on our own. Don't make don't misunderstand me to be suggesting that. But also understand that that there is a sense in which the responsibility does come back to us. To submit to surrender. To trust. With the understanding that God will respond to that. In bringing together the things that we need. The strength and the courage, etc. We have to be willing to submit to the Spirit. And let go of the banana. Let go of the banana. Now, this brings us to the point of this morning's lesson. This has all been introduction, by the way. Lesson starts now, so those of you to worry about time, just start the, the watch now. And we'll be good. Taming the tongue, Mr Bean. Isn't Mr Bean a cute guy? Taming the tongue. And I want to use this as, a, as an illustration of what I've been talking about thus far. Again, James, not, not a coincidence, I'm sure. James in chapter 1 talks about this process of temptation. In this context, James talks about a lot of examples of temptation and wrongdoing. Here he talks about the tongue. Now let's just read through the text and note what James says. We all stumble in many ways. He's speaking in the context especially of being a teacher. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. This is important. The use of the tongue is important. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. An itty bitty little bit that fits in the mouth can turn a whole strong, wild animal that otherwise could turn and kick us to death, just like that. This little bit controls that situation, brings all of that strength and power under our control. Take ships as an example. Although they are so large and they're driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring, my brothers and sisters can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? neither can a salt spring produce fresh water now don 't mistake James to be saying it 's impossible to control your tongue and therefore don 't worry about it that 's far from his point what he 's saying is don 't underestimate the difficulty of it though, which just calls us to to put forth all the greater effort in Controlling our tongue. I don't know. um, The use of the tongue in a negative sense usually is latched onto things like racism and sexism, etc., etc. This is just one very recent, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, um, Isaac Rankin, an indigenous Aussie rules player, uh, abused online. And it's interesting... The, the uh, headline there, you'll notice, it's not a real person. Uh, and this is citing comments by a, by the coach of um, Adelaide Crows, Matthew Nix. Um, he slams as a coward uh, the the one who racially abused um, Rankin on on social media. It, it caught my eye that it's not a real person. Apparently, uh, 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 the individual whoever made these comments. Um, uh, hid themselves online so that they couldn't be traced. That's what he means by the idea of cowardice. It's not a real person. Uh, But I thought from a spiritual point of view, that has an added dimension. It's not a real person. He's treating Rankin as if he's not a real person. And in doing so, whoever it is that's been perpetrating this abuse is being less than human, you remember Irenaeus's comment, the goal is to be fully human. This is a good example of what it is to be less than human. And of course this has a history for us. Uh, Nicky Winmar most famously back in 1993, 30 years ago, that incident when he was responding to abuse from the crowd by pointing out his pride in his aboriginality and of course even more recently and tragically I might add Adam Goods, an outstanding athlete hounded out of the game by vicious abuse and rumouring tragic and who could forget old Dolly young Dolly um Maybe maybe we have forgotten. Um, back in early 2018, committed suicide because she was hounded online, bullying online. And um, we just know how tragic that is. How powerful the tongue can be when it's used against people ruining football careers, robbing young people of life. I'd like to use as my primary text this morning, Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through to 32, and I'm going to read, introduce it to you with um, the message by Eugene Peterson. But that's no life for you. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you've paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth, precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through, from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, from sin to to Christ-likeness. Get rid of it and then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. What this adds to, up to then is, is this, and he goes on to give this this example, but just notice the language there, the concept that Peterson does such a wonderful job of capturing. A life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. Remember that, that cooperation with the Spirit of God. We surrender, we submit and God works in and within and through us. So here's one of the examples that Paul gives. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps. Each word a gift. Don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. You see, when we refuse to submit to surrender, we grieve the Spirit of God. We grieve God himself because his desire is for our good. And when we say no thank you, it grieves God, it grieves him for the, the consequences for us, not just us as individuals but what flows on to those around us. Make a clean break, says Paul, with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive, forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. Just to explore this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Now that's very straightforward. You have to, I think you'd need help to misunderstand that. Watch the way you talk, Peterson put it. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. The term here corrupts speech. It speaks of evil or rotten talk. Words of a complaining, sneering, cynical type, all of which spread demoralization in a community. Speech that corrupts the speaker and harms the hearer. It's like a virus. Foul language, not only obscene vulgarity, but slanderous and contemptuous talk. Any talk that works to the detriment of those spoken about. And of course it includes gossip. Again, that's very simple to understand. Simple to understand. Such things ought not to be found among the people of God, not just when we're assembled together as we are this morning on the first day of the week, but in our lives in general, we should stand out like Mr. Fabulous in the work environment, where a positive attitude, a wholesome speech draws the attention, the curiosity of those around. It reminds me, and again, I know I can move through this very quickly because you're all familiar with this, you recognise it. The issue is one of changing hearts, the process of, remember Paul, Romans chapter 12 verse 2, be transformed, transformed hearts, not just compliance. Compliance works up to a point, but as soon as you take away Whatever the threat is, the incentive to comply, we're back doing something else. That's the case where we, whether we think of Israel of old. You know, in the few occasions when there was a good God, a good God, there was a good king, and, and, and he instituted religious reform, he dies, and guess what? The people are straight back to the stuff that they were engaged in before. That seems to be common human. That's why we're plagued with laws today. Bureaucracy, we're buried in red tape because people lack the character generally to be concerned about doing the right thing as, a, as coming from here. A motivation, it's just, I'm, I'm driven by, Colberg says this is the most immature of, of ways of, of establishing and living morally. It's the big stick thing. I'll do the right thing as long as I'm fearful of the consequences, but take the consequences out of the way and, hey free slather and i 'd be a mug you 're a mug if you don 't do whatever you want i mean well I think we 're starting to experience the consequences of that in a society from a christian that 's not that 's not the way we live if we understand christ. Uh, you may remember this incident and controversy around it. The example here was the washing of hands and, and whatnot. But the, the principle is what I want you to notice. The things that come out of a person's mouth, said Jesus, come from the heart. And these things, the things coming from the heart, are what defile. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. You know, it's the connection with language there. It's what's what's out there originates here and it's an expression of the state of affairs here. Listen carefully in this light to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Because of the subject matter, you might miss the connection. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, racha, that is contempt, uh, an expression of contempt, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool, that is you waste of space or you're of no worth, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, just quickly to notice a few things here. There's a sequence of... of, um, um, actions and attitudes, we begin with murder, which is in, in a broader sense to be judged, to be guilty. You know, tut-tut, everyone knows that murder is wrong. And Jesus says, well, you know what, anger is on the same plane. Uh, anger there, I've added words like intimidation or, or, or seeking to do harm to the other. And again, tut-tut, we recognise it. That's that's wrong. But then this one, insult, racha. Racha is one of those delightful onomatopoeias, which is a word that is, that is derived from the sound that it makes, like plop. Bing. Racha. Racha. I spit upon you. I spit upon you. It's an extreme expression of contempt towards another person. And you'll notice here, Jesus says, such a person is in danger of the council, the Sanhedrin, literally, being brought before the court of the land, not just, not just recognising the judgement, the general wisdom of judgement, uh, common sense, that's wrong behaviour. This is something that's brought before a human council. Then we have you fool, which is an expression of Extreme indifference towards a person. It's like, you're a no-thing. You're stupid, dull, empty. You're useless. And of course we notice that Jesus says, such an attitude warrants hellfire of eternal punishment. And the interesting thing, I think, is this. Seemingly they're diminishing or, or lesser offences as we move through. Most of us, would, if we were called upon to rank these as most... Bad, to least bad, we would probably put it in this order. Murder, anger, insult, indifference. I mean, indifference, really, it's easy to resort to, isn't it? I don't, I'm gonna, my response to you is, is, I don't like you, I'm angry with you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend you don't exist. And some people in some circles would say that's a good response. Well, in the heat of a moment, to step away might be a good response. But if it's out of a motivation of, I dismiss that person, they don't count, they're nothing. That has tragic consequences, as Jesus implies, because they, while there are while seemingly lesser offences, you'll notice that the consequences, as Jesus describes it, escalates. The consequence of indifference is stronger than murder or anger. That's interesting. And of course, it's not so surprising when we understand the connection between the two, between each one of these, um, from judgment, disapproval for both murder and anger, to trial by the council uh, for insults, to hellfire for ascribing worthlessness. What we might think the lesser offence attracts the more severe punishment. And of course they're all connected, but notice they're all connected from the ground up. When somebody treats or views somebody as being worthless... That is scary. Because once you deny somebody of their humanity, their worth, it's a very small step to jump to, ultimately, to murdering them. And we live in a society that has made that judgement of certain people, whether it be unborn infants and more recently now, even if you are old and infirmed, you're dispensable. And you can only arrive at that point when you make the judgment, like their life is not worth living. Their life is not worth living. I suspect that Mr. Hitler drew that conclusion when it came to the way he treated Jews and, and, and other types, if you will, of, of, of people. He deemed that their life was not worth living and the world would be a better place without them. Yeah. Be careful. Be thoughtful, be mindful of how we use our language. Your parents' advice was good advice. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Do people say that in Sri Lanka? Yeah, seems to be pretty much a universal observation. I can't tell you how many times my mother told me this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. So there's the what not to do now, this is what to do instead. Say only what helps, says Peterson, but only what is useful for building up, so there is need, as there is need, sorry, near New Revised Standard Version, and the NIV only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. So, Paul's appeal here is to our, our language, if it's going to be fit for purpose, which is upbuilding the other, needs to be suited to the circumstances, which means it needs to be appropriate and it needs to be diplomatic. We need to think. When we understand how powerful words can be for good or ill we need to stop and think back to that spectrum the desire there we might somebody might say something somebody might do something and our initial reaction is anywhere on that scale of i want to murder you i'm angry with you i'm contemptuous towards you you're you're nothing anywhere on that scale There's the temptation, there's the desire. But we're well informed in Christ and we know that it's critical at that point in time we intervene and we consider how we respond. If we just knee-jerk reaction to to anger or or dismissing somebody, then it's not going to go well for us or for them. If we stop and consider though, what is needful? In this situation, and that's not always going to be a, a nice word. It might take a, a rebuke, might be warranted. The most loving thing at any moment might be a firm word. It's not whether it's nice or not; it's whether it's in their best interests or not. Agape, loving them. What do they need in the moment? And in doing it, again, if it's not about me, but it's in their interest, I can be diplomatic. I can think about, well, this is the message they need to hear. How can I best convey that message so that they'll understand it, that they will, that they will at least receive it? Finally, be generous with your gift of blessing. You know, the, the, the fact that what we say potentially can accomplish so much good Why wouldn't we want to be generous with that? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Each word a gift. Each word a gift. God's children are not just to refrain from bad talk. We are to be proactively engaged in the business of building up and blessing, giving grace gifts to others through what we say. This is something that lies within the power of every one of us in this room. If we will just take the time to appreciate the value of blessing and take the time to think about how can I bless. You know... Now, in the past, I've done a great deal of, of relationship counselling and you're all, it's always risky to say something like this. Well, I can't say it because my wife's out, out of the room, so I can, I can say whatever, I can get away with it, except that Jill will dob me in. In my opinion, the best advice that I can give to a husband or a wife who are in a conflicted relationship is really to think about how can I bless the other if we're humble enough if we if we're serious enough about being a disciple of Christ that simple phrase will give us pretty good direction in enjoying successful relationships with our children in the workplace with our spouse how can I bless you I wonder what it would be like if if every time we engage with somebody, even here in the church, every every Sunday morning when we come together, we meet somebody, and if the first thing in the back of your mind, how can I bless you? How can I bless you? And then consider how that thought, that question can translate into something we might say. Some of you are really well practised at this. Some of you are really well practised. All of us could be, though. All of us could be. Um, Jesus and Hillel again, a well-known incident. I don't doubt that you've heard this before. It's interesting, though. Um, Hillel, uh, not quite contemporary. Oh, yeah, he was contemporary with Jesus. He was a very old man when Jesus was born. Um, one of the more historically, one of the more prominent Jewish rabbis had a whole school following him, the school of Hillel. And he was famous for a few incidents, but but one was one was this, the statement, uh, what is hateful to you, do not do to others. That was his summary of the law, the law of Moses. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? You remember Jesus' response to that same question, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Love God and love your neighbour. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So Jesus just plagiarised Hillel, right? No. Jesus improved considerably, significantly upon Hillel because Jesus took what Hillel put in negative terms and put a positive, proactive spin on it. You see, if it was just about do no harm, which is a good ethic and you could wish that, you know, the Hippocratic Oath with with medical professionals, and that's what they commit to, do no harm. Society would be a better place if everybody consistently operated on the basis of that ethic: do no harm. But Christ calls His followers to something much more than that. You see, do no harm. You could be you could be a good Christian and be a rock. (laughs) Do no harm. Just their mind. Even if somebody comes along and stubs their toe on you, it's not your fault. You haven't done that. It's their fault. You've done nothing wrong in the process. But that's not—that's not what Christ calls us to. Proactively, positively, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Big difference. Jesus urges that we be proactive in blessing others, not just refraining from doing harm, not saying anything. Therefore, will rarely be an option for the Christian to be eager to bless others with their speech. It's always going to be appropriate to say something needful to bless the other person sometimes that blessing might be in their best interests a caution it might not always be warm and fuzzy but it must always be motivated by love seeking to address the needs of the person and when nothing else comes to mind just tell them how important they are just tell them, isn't it great to be God's child? So in conclusion, choose only wholesome and true words. After I put this lesson together, I kind of thought, truth, that's something that needs to be, but there's not way gone on time. Say only what is helpful and appropriate to the circumstance. And finally, try to make each conversation a gift. Agape in action to the other. Now we look at those wagging tongues, and, and I wonder what goes on in your mind when you, you know the stereotype wagging, wagging tongue, gossip, gossip, trouble, trouble. Well, wonder if our world, if we were so conditioned, both in expressing and receiving the blessing of other people's tongues, that that you know a strange picture like that might invoke positive feelings in us.